0: Thank you, Marley. Um, I want to make a couple of comments about this, the set and songs that Marley's done this morning, um, just to tie them into the message um, just a little bit. So um, as she was sharing from Ephesians 2 this morning, I want maybe if you just have your Bibles, you can take those and turn there, because I want to read a little bit more of the passage. And uh, I think as, as we were singing that... Um, it's one of those things where she, Marley, shared that passage out of Ephesians two, looking at the song "Greater You, Lord," which um, it emphasizes a couple con- concepts that I thought were really interesting that will tie into the message today. One is that it's Jesus. You are the one who brings life. You bring uh, life, and it says you bring light to the darkness, and. It's interesting because one of the concepts that we're looking at in this Gospel of Mark series is this simple fact that it's much more, and don't don't take this as I'm minimizing the, the gospel message itself, but we're looking at the person of Jesus. And we need to remember that so much of what we have based our faith on is about the person of Jesus, not just the message. Certainly it is the message. We need the truth. God gave us specific revelation, in the form of words in Scripture, and we only understand the truth of who Jesus is based on Scripture. But the important fact is that we need to remember what Jesus has done for us in his person. And so it's interesting. Let's let's read Ephesians 2. I've been talking and not getting there, but let's... Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1... And I'll make a couple more comments. It says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sin in which you once walked, fo- following the course of this world, uh, and the prince, uh, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of d- disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And this, this is where Marley picked up, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So a so couple things there. First is we were singing that the Lord has called us out of the grave. Well, none of us have likely been buried. Now, you may have been buried in the sand growing up at the beach, you know, like when you're gone to the beach and somebody buried you in the sand, but not to the point of being in the grave physically, right? So what that line is referring to is this picture of what we get in Ephesians 2, that we are all dead in our sins and trespasses, and, and that we are by uh, nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That death is what we need Jesus to overcome. So what's interesting in all of this passage did you notice it's in Jesus, in Jesus, in, or in God, who's rich in mercy? It, it's about the person of Jesus. And then when we sang nothing but the blood, it's about the person of Jesus and his work through the, 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 his sacrifice on the cross. And so, excuse me, so what, what I want to drive us to this morning is if we don't really understand and grasp the full person of Jesus, We can learn all sorts of little things that are cool about the parables that he teaches and all sorts of things about the encounters that he had with people, but it is about us knowing Jesus, his person, his work, his grace, his mercy. All the things about him are are what the gospel is truly about. And so this morning as we turn into the, the gospel of Mark, (coughs) <coughs> Excuse me, I set this up because I think what Mark is doing here is, again, he's elevating the person of Jesus above everything else that, that we see in this text. Because as he's beginning this gospel, we're going to be in chapter 1 still. So in Mark chapter 1, we're going to see him walking into the synagogue and establishing himself and his authority over any of the authority in the world. So the title for the message is just this, the authority of Jesus. And I want to unpack three things. We're going to look at the context of what Jesus is doing, uh, in his ministry. It's, it's a very, uh, important thing that I think in our Gentile context uh, of 21st century, we miss. Okay. Um, And so we need to understand some of the historical elements of what's actually happening on the scene. So the context is going to be the first thing that we look at. The second point that we're going to look at is the uniqueness of Jesus. How does Mark set Jesus apart? And then we're going to look at the significance of Jesus' authority. So let's begin by looking at this context. Uh, And and in order to get it, we're going to need to read. So let's look at Mark uh, 1, 21 through 28 and they went into Capernaum and immediately now remember I've I've told you as you're reading through the Gospel of Mark you might want to mark down immediately like underline that because it's an important concept that uh, Mark uses throughout the Gospel because he's he's constantly emphasizing uh, the relationship with Jesus is not something that we delay when we respond to Jesus it's not something that we we have to like consider for years and years and years it's this immediacy When we encounter Jesus, it's the call to immediately respond and not delay. So verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. And I I underline the word authority there because it comes up again uh, and again in the the gospel. And he says, one who had authority and not as the scribes. Verse 23, and immediately... He commands even uncle- the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So. It's very interesting, this this context that Mark uh, jumps into, and it's it's kind of, in a sense, I think assumed because of his own writing and and period that people would understand some of the significance about Jesus teaching in the synagogue. But as I went back uh, and started looking at this, I wanted to understand more of why Jesus was constantly speaking in the synagogues. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. I've just kind of assumed, well, he, he was just there and he hopped up, but it's not that simple. So I want to give you a couple of things about the synagogue. First of all, the synagogue is a local place in the city for worship. Remember, how did the, the Israelites originally uh, participate in worship? It was through the temple. So they would go to Jerusalem and have the uh, worship at the temple. It was not something that was, even though they're probably doing it in their families, I think that's what you go back to uh, Deuteronomy 6, the Shema passage. They would talk about the the word as they uh, rose and walked around through the day where they sat or whatever. Um, But I think there was not this uh, reliance upon a, a, a gathering in the local cities for them to worship. That actually happened because of the Babylonian captivity. When they were in Babylon, they began to develop the synagogues and came back and uh, would worship locally. So, what we see is this is actually happening as we see in Ezra chapter 4, verse 7. I want you to turn over there. If you can throw a ribbon in Mark 1, that'll be helpful. Then turn over to Ezra 4, verse 7. Now, if you remember, Ezra and Nehemiah are kind of co books. If in, of the scripture that address what was happening with the Israelites as they were coming back from the Babylonian captivity to restore Jerusalem, to restore the temple worship, and, and to re- remember build the walls of Jerusalem so they could be safe. And so here in Ezra chapter 4 verse 7 we read this interesting passage and I'll break this down for us a little bit. In the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithradoth and Tabil and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Um, So here's the idea, is that word translated there is the first use in scripture of this idea of the Aramaic being translated into the language that the people could understand. So here in Ezra, what's going on is this letter's gone out and the people need to understand what the letter is and this picture of the, the uh, work being translated before the people is established. Now, what does that mean for us? It actually had, or for the, the time in the synagogue, this is actually where the word translated be- starts to be used in the, syna- the picture of the synagogue. That they would translate, whoever was teaching in the synagogue would begin to translate the message for the people. So here's the picture of of, uh, what the synagogue looks like, because I think this is also um, interesting. Um, Has anybody been to a synagogue worship service before? Gina, you have, Tony, okay, a couple, a couple of you. I've not ever been. Um, I, 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 that's something I would love to go do um, and, and just need to, to plan for it. I actually hopped online and started looking at a Messianic Jewish uh, service this week in research, and I was like, okay, these things start making sense with what all the research that I was doing in the reading. So when you think about, like, for us uh, up, up here, the platform, this, um, you might have a podium I I don't have a podium. I don't like the barrier. That's part of why I I do what I do. Um, But here's what they have: they have a bema. It's basically a podium that the speaker goes to. Behind them, they actually have this thing called the Ark of the Covenant. And and I was like, I started reading that. I was like, that doesn't make sense because the Ark of the Covenant was in the temple and it should have been there. But they actually call this thing the Ark of the Covenant. Do you know what the Ark of the Covenant holds? Does anybody remember? Not the official one, but the one in the synagogues? Say, say it really loud over there. Torah. The Torah, the, the laws, the scrolls. Right, that's exactly right. So what happens is they actually have people, that um, servants that would go and open the Ark of the Covenant, and then the teacher would go and get that scroll and the Torah, the law, out, and they would take that to the Bema and open it, and they would begin to teach. So that's an important thing for us to understand. So here's... This is where it gets really, really interesting to me. So in the synagogues, they typically had a uh, a, a leader who would have operated in that synagogue more as like a librarian, a school teacher, someone who was over the order of the worship and those kind of things. They might have been elevated to a point or worked to the point that they were a scribe, somebody that was reading the word consistently and and knowing the, the scriptures, but typically that may not have been the case. So their responsibility was to find someone who was walking in holiness to be the one who would teach. And so recognizing that specific person, they would then invite them to give the message from the Torah that day. So it's interesting, this, um, the scribes, if they got to the point, they they were often the ones who were invited to teach. If they really gained success and, and um, like, were, uh, recognized as doing a good job presenting a word, then they would be given the title of rabbi or teacher. So because the the problem at that point was there, there was not a lot of official schooling and education systems that would take these scribes and train them in, in, in these uh, in the truth of the scriptures. So now Put this in place. There's also this little title that was given to this person who would be the one who would open the scroll and teach. He was called the Sheliach Zibur. Now, you don't have to remember that or write it down. I'm not even going to give you the spelling of that stuff. But here's what that title meant. It meant the one who passes before the ark. So, So think about that for just a moment. You have this leader of the synagogue, approaching the Sabbath worship, Jesus comes into town, and this leader gives Jesus a request or gives him permission to come and be the one who passes before the ark to unfold the scroll from the ark of the covenant there and to present the message. So what is Jesus immediately doing in the synagogue here that Mark describes? He's the mediator. He's the divine mediator on God's behalf who has to have this kind of quality. He's supposed to be a sinless man, one who is without blemish, who is walking in holiness and righteousness. Do do you get the picture of what Mark's actually describing now before us? It's it's this idea that Jesus is is the one, the mediator, bringing the truth. Now, here's what's so interesting to me. We're going to look at this a little bit more we don't know what jesus taught that day there's there's no indication of the scroll like in some other places we know that jesus taught from isaiah and he he would speak and do do these things and share certain things but here mark doesn't give us any of that information i think it's really interesting we'll explore that in just a minute so what is what so so that's the context i think that's just so interesting um and so that context helps us to see something about Jesus, and that is this, that Jesus is unique. Um, when we think about the term authority, and I, I want you to go back and let's look at this in the text again. So in, in verse 22, and they, it says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, and then followed the qualifier, not as the scribes. So, so they're recognizing that Jesus' authority is distinct from many of the others that were invited in or brought in or had the privilege of speaking and sharing from the scroll. Jesus has authority. Now, that word is really important because that word emphasizes this. It emphasizes the divine work of God, that God himself is at work and his power is what sets that authority. So it's no small thing just to say, well, well, Jesus had authority. Like It's emphasizing that Jesus himself is divine. And, and I think we can kind of lose sight of that just thinking, oh, he, he knew what he was talking about. It's much more rich than that. It's that God himself had his hand upon Jesus in that moment, and it was recognized that his authority was directly from God and not as one of, just of men. So why would... Mark used that term two times. Did you catch that? Um, he he mentions it in verse 22. I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 22. And then he again mentions it in verse 27 as they've reflected, the people in the synagogue reflected, and they said, he teaches uh, a new teaching with authority, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. That, I, I think why Mark is emphasizing that aspect of Jesus' divine authority is because it is... A uh, emphasis on Jesus as the divine representative for God before humanity. So, so think about that for just a moment. As the divine representative for God before humanity, Jesus is like no other. Because the scribes, where do they get their authority? It, it was just because of their own work ethic and trying to study the scriptures and knowing those things. It wasn't because God had blessed them and and shown his hand upon them, his power, his, his divine uh, person in and through them. It was simply because they worked at it themselves. Jesus stands apart. See, they derive their, the scribes derive their authority from their earthly fathers and the traditions that they embrace. Jesus derives his authority from who? His heavenly father. And the, the uh, work that he has been honored to do, uh, because of his holiness and his righteousness as the only son of God. Um, So, why is Jesus, uh, well, I think this is important too. Let me make sure that I cover this. Um, It's, and I mentioned this already, but I want to go back and look at this. It's, It's the fact that Mark does not share anything about what Jesus taught. It's like, what, why would he not do that? And I, I think it's because, one, is what Jesus brought is grounded, what his message was is grounded in his person. Not, not just the scriptures itself. I'm not diminishing the, the truth of the scriptures, but it's about the person and authority of Jesus himself. And that's why Mark is emphasizing this. So it's, it's in that the message can then be trusted because of who Jesus is, not just because the message itself. And, and I think we, we often, I think as believers, go, yeah, yeah, that's that's great, that's great. But here's my struggle. I think both personally and then for us corporately in, in, as a local church and then corporately as the entire church, a lot of times we can get caught up in what does that mean rather than who is it about. Does that make sense? We, we want to think through the truths that are there instead of us really having a relationship with Christ because of the truth. And, and I think that's what we've got to be careful of. And I'm going to point that out in just a minute more. So why is Jesus' authority significant? So we've looked at the context. We've seen that Jesus is unique and his authority is unique. But why is Jesus authority significant. As I was studying, I came across the, a comment by a Jewish scholar. His name is David Flusser. He identifies this about Jesus. And I think this is, I'm, I'm going to read this statement and I want you to hang on to this for just a minute. I'll try to break it down. He says that Jesus was conscious of his exalted worth, which was accompanied by his personal humility and opposed to any hint of a personality cult. So so here's what he's getting at. Jesus was very conscious of his uh, position as the divine son of God, that that he knew exactly who he was. But instead of like flaunting that and utilizing that to, to draw people to himself and elevating that, he actually approached things in great humility. And how we see that especially played out in this text is when that demon-possessed man came in, it wasn't actually him speaking at first. Did you catch that? It was actually the demons speaking through him saying, uh, let's go back and read it. Verse uh, 24, they, they said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And, and Jesus doesn't want that to be what draws people to himself yet. He's, he's trying to, to develop his ministry at this point and, and build some momentum. And so he's trying to keep that demon at bay. So he immediately exercises that demon from the man and says, and, and so they can't speak anymore. So my point is that Jesus was operating with a degree of humility, not just trying to say, well, hey, look at me. He, he's got so much more work to do and time to do that in his ministry and to build up a following and, and of disciples that would be equipped to go and minister to others. He's, he's slow rolling this at that point. And so his humility is not like, hey, let's just make the most of me. It, his humility is, is one that he's trying to become that servant leader and modeling that. And I think that's a huge piece. So uh, Flusser goes on to say, he says, which means that Jesus' identity was inextricably bound up with the knowledge that his own person was not interchangeable with any other person. So, so I think that's also a key point. Jesus is saying, I alone am the Messiah, but I want to show my humility in this because it's not about me ruling and reigning at this point. But, and here's what's now next interesting in this. So why is all this significant or, importance, or important? Because what Jesus is doing, he is uh, actually doing some things here that emphasize his kingdom authority. And so we see that played out in that he, uh, well, well, let's look at this, let's look back at this. It's the people, in verse 25, it says that Jesus rebuked him and saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying this, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And so here's, here's what's happening is the, uh, there was actually a conflict of kingdoms that was occurring right there in that moment in the synagogue. It's the kingdom of God being established because of Jesus' presence presence over the kingdom of the enemy. And Jesus is establishing his earthly rule. But it's a rule that we know, because we get to read ahead, that it's not the the rule that everyone anticipated where he would come in and overthrow the the systems of the uh, kingdoms of the earth He was overthrowing Satan's kingdom and establishing his authority. And people saw that, but they weren't fully understanding that. And so we we need to understand that it's about the person of Jesus establishing that authority, not just the message. So here's another interesting piece. And I I thought about this, um, but we, we don't get that sense from Mark that, hey, here's the message of all the things that Jesus has taught. But I think that there's some things that we also see in between what he's included in the text. And that is this Mark wanted to emphasize that Jesus, the Savior, is more important than the subject of his teaching. And I've said that again and again, but I think that's a clear message in this. And here's why Jesus himself is the embodiment of the gospel. Does that make sense? Jesus himself is is the embodiment of the gospel. We could have like all the scriptures of the Old Testament point to Jesus, but if Jesus himself does not come and fulfill all those promises, what are those things? What are all the things in the message of the Old Testament? They're just words, right? They're, they're just ideas. But when Jesus comes and fulfills those things, he himself is the embodiment of the gospel. So... Now I want to go back to why I introduced what, what I thought Marley did so well in the worship this morning and, and why I laced these things together. is It's about the blood of Christ. It's about the person of Jesus himself. If we extract Jesus from any of the message, we've, we've lost the whole of the gospel. And so what we need to do is we need to emphasize the person of Jesus on an ongoing basis in our lives. So I want to have you turn back to Isaiah 61. We looked at this last week, and I want to read this again because I think this is such a vital piece of Old Testament truth that points to these things. So if you remember, there's this shift that occurs from Isaiah 60 where it is the Lord God speaking to Isaiah 61 where it is the messenger speaking. Uh, of God who's coming, and he's the one who begins to speak in Isaiah 61.1. So let's read this together. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called the oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. I love that picture because it's all about the person of this uh, uh, servant, suffering servant who has come to fulfill the call of God to make way the, the redemptive paths for his people. And, and we can put ourselves in all of those places that we have been bound up, brokenhearted, that we have um, we've been those who've mourned, that we, we have ashes instead of a beautiful headdress. All the things that he is providing for us come because of who he is. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, where does that leave us? I want to challenge us each this morning with this question and response. When you see Jesus through the lens of Scripture, do you, like the witnesses of His day, respond to the authoritative truth of who He is, being convicted and convinced subdued and transformed by Jesus and his person and his truth. See, I think as I say that, I think most of us in here would say, yeah, I've responded to those things. But I want to give you a qualifier this morning to help us really evaluate that response well. Because I think we can, most of us here would say, oh, yeah, I recognize Jesus as authority. We, we recognize that, that what the truth of Scripture brings is, is clear. And, and I love Jesus. But I think we often do this. We often go, yeah, I know those things. And then that begins a level of devotion where we go, yeah, I've, I've surrendered. Or I've been convinced and convicted. But here's where I think it, it, it becomes more specific and qualified. Do we have a deepening devotion to Christ? See, that's a a harder question to answer because I think it's easy for us to say, oh yeah, I'm devoted to Jesus. I like these things, but are we deepening our devotion to Christ on a daily basis? You might say, well, how does that happen? Well, it happens by us getting in the Word And following what the word teaches us about Jesus and surrendering to him on an ongoing basis because we're more convinced about who he is and we're more deeply convicted about the the sin that we struggle with and our need for Christ. And we continue to deepen in our walk with him by growing in intimacy with him. How many of you have Uh, How many of you have been married for over 10 years? Okay. Most of us in here, okay. Um, How many of you have had a really close friend for over 10 years? Okay. Most of us have, okay. So here's here's my analogy. If you have a close friend or you've been married, do you still discover things about your spouse or your close friend that you didn't know five years ago, or four years ago, or maybe even a month ago. Do you, do you still discover those things? I, I, I do. I mean, it's amazing. Katie and I have been married, I hate to say it, for over 30 years now. And there's still things that we explore about one another in our thinking, in our heartbeats, in our, our desires and dreams for the future. And it sweetens the relationship. Folks, we will never plumb the depths of who Jesus is. And so when I mean when I when I say this about a deepening devotion we ought to be asking ourselves how much more am I learning about Jesus today than I did a week ago? How much is my devotion to him deepening because I am seeing Him in a new light because I'm, my, my love for Him is increasing because I'm understanding His person. I'm understanding the things that He's done. I'm understanding His mercy. I'm understanding His grace. I'm understanding more about His role in the Godhead. I'm understanding more about the Trinity. I'm diving into these things deeper and deeper and deeper and my devotion is increasing. See, I think we live in a day and age where people don't do that devotion is token and, and we we say oh yeah i'll do this or and i'm i'm going to say say it this way and i'm, I'm going to pick real real directly on us because i struggle with this in in church life in some ways are we weekend warriors where we show up on sunday and think oh that's going to be the, the really deep time of my walk or are we doing it daily like driving daily into our relationship with the Lord so that what happens on the weekend is only enhances one, another life, one another's lives. I hope it's the latter because if we're only weekend warriors, we won't ever really get deeper in the things of God, which means this. We need to be giving attention to one another and our walks with the Lord on a daily basis. That's the way that the, the, our, our devotion is deepened and sweetened. So I go back to this question. Where are you? Where are you? Are you more convinced, more convicted? Are you, uh, I love these words, and I'm going back to it. Are you subdued and transformed by Jesus and his truth? Deepening in that devotion daily. Because what we see is he is authority. He is the one that's divine, the one divine one sent by God to satisfy all of our needs. See, that's the gospel. That's the gospel. Looking at Jesus, the author of our faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we take a moment just to consider these truths, I pray that you would, through the power and presence of your Spirit, speak to each one of us. Because, Lord, the the truth is, I think, over my own lifetime and journey of, of faith, I can easily get caught up in just the complacency and being satisfied with where I was a week ago and not thinking I need to learn anything new and I don't need to see and relate to Jesus in any different way. Father, the truth is I need to to grow in my devotion deeper and deeper every day. Lord, that, that takes work. It takes commitment. It takes discipline. It takes encouragement from the body. And so, Lord, each of us has that same need and I pray right now, Lord, that what we would do over the next thirty seconds or so, we would just contemplate how it is that each of us personally needs to work to deepen our devotion with you. Lord, for some it may be that that they've never really surrendered to Christ, that they that they can't have that devotion apart from a relationship. They just know in facts. Lord, I've been there. Lord through surrender to Christ and, and his lordship, that's where this devotional journey begins. So Lord, they may need to confess you as Lord and Savior. And if that's the case, well, we certainly want to give them counsel. For others that are here today, Lord, they may have been walking with Christ for a long season as their, their Savior and they're, they're doing things. But Lord, I think the truth is all of us need to see Jesus in a fresh light to deepen that devotion with him so he is pleased, and He is glorified. And as we consider Him, the, our our acclamation too is, He is. This is authority from God. There's none like Him. Surely there's none like Him. So, Father, I just want to be quiet for the next thirty seconds or so, and I want people to to do business with you. For them to hear from you and then to respond, how you are calling them to respond, maybe in commitment, maybe it's in repentance, maybe it's uh, in in, uh, some other way, Lord, but I, I know that you are trustworthy and we can listen to you and obey. Heavenly Father we are so grateful for Jesus. The authority that you have given him, the call that you have given him to be that suffering servant, also the, the victor. Lord, as we think through his authority, the truth is there ought to be no one that we desire to glorify more than, than him. Lord, I think about the scripture that says that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Lord, that, that truth right there, it emphasizes the right posture, the right position that we ought to be in. And Lord, I, I think so many times we're, we're just too easily satisfied with the things of this world on a daily basis that Jesus is made much of and that we would be more concerned with his kingdom and the future of his kingdom than anything else that the world has to offer. So, Father, as we uh, get ready to sing a reprise of the worship this morning, I pray that you would be exalted, that the thoughts that are packaged both in the message and in the words of the song would echo true to you because you are a great God who is worthy of our worship. So, Father, we commend ourselves to you now to have, uh, to, so that we would be people that serve you faithfully with our, our lives this week. We bless you in Jesus' name, amen.